My chains are broken. What about you? Spitting facts. Sometimes whether we feel it or not, the truth is not about a feeling, it's a reality. Today we're going to talk a little bit about that truth in a new series we're doing for this month. This is Love Month, Black History Month, all of the love, all of the things we get to do in February that we enjoy. Some of you single people say, oh, I don't care about this, but we're going to get to you. There's good things. Being single is a gift that God has given you, that he wants you to steward well. That's a, a good thing as well as marriage. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in our series that we've titled DM. For dating and marriage, not necessarily for direct messaging. All, although we get it, if you're not up with culture, um, someone sliding into your DMs on Instagram or some other social media is a colloquialism. It's a, it's a term used to say, I saw you, I want to see you, and I would like to hook up with you. And literally going into their direct messages and saying, hey, girl. There's a few memes that are really uh, fun. This is one of my favorite memes right here. Slide into your DMs like, hey, right? I like that. He kind of looks a little bit like my eight-year-old son's school picture. <laughs> Um, it looks a little bit like that. And that, that's what, yeah, you see somebody, oh, I want to know you. I want to hook up and let's go. This is common. Here's a, another one. When you're scrolling too hard and accidentally like a guy's post and he slides into your DMs two and a half seconds later, like, hey, right? This is what, unfortunately, some of you ladies have to put up with, with men and with these guys and maybe some girls, but uh, next one. Here's one, I like this one. When someone tries to slide into your girl's DMs, a little uh, Home Alone throwback there like, hey bro, what's up? Let's fight, let's go. I don't want to start this series though just giving you a couple of ideas and ways to date right, to have good conflict or sex and marriage, which we talk about. I think it's not bad, it's good. The Bible talks a lot about these types of things. Maybe not explicitly this is how to do it, but we wanna try to give you some helpful things going forward as we're hitting this the next several weeks. Here's an example of a good helpful thing that I found. If you are looking to slide into someone's DMs, you need to ask yourself some questions. Number one, is she or he a celebrity? Depending on how you answer that, yes or no. If yes, do you know her or him? Then if no, you have to ask yourself this question, am I a celebrity? And if yes, then congrats, go write it, go for it. Direct message that person. If no, you might want to rethink this decision. That's most of us. Now, of course, if the other way, is he or she a celebrity? No, okay. How attractive are you? That's a good question to ask. And if your answer is, I make women miss their subway stops, then go forth and DM. That's, that's what you want to do. If the answer to how attractive are you is, I have a great personality, you need to realize superficial platforms favor superficial qualities. Give it a shot, but don't expect much, right? Um, this is, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, 
some things we're having to deal with nowadays or getting to deal with, depending on your perspective, when it comes to dating, getting in a relationship. And, and we're kind of playing on this word because we're going to talk about dating and marriage. But it was my conviction, and I felt like from the Lord, to not start this series in a place from here's practical ways to date or date right or what to do to win your man or win your girl or what do you do if you're seeing all these types of things, which we're going to talk a little bit about upcoming. But I wanted to start this series with this concept. Where are you foundationally and what is your relationship ultimately with Scripture? And this is why I say this, because God has direct message to us, if you will. Let me play on that. And given us ways to live, ways to be in community, ways to have relationship, specifically things and ways to think and heart postures for marriage, for dating, for life in general. And if you don't have a robust idea or at least foundation of scripture being paramount to everything I'm trying to do, it won't matter the types of things I'm gonna try to help you with because you don't necessarily, might not necessarily have a high view of what God says, especially in our culture today when there's so many ideas there's so many different views, and typically people want to find their view and their way and their truth and not to submit to anything else but only how I feel or what works for me. Instead of coming under submission, which means literally coming under the mission of a greater reality or greater truth. In our culture today, we don't do that. So again, I could give you a lot of good, helpful things, but if we don't have a base of we should look highly at scripture through the lens of Jesus. It's really not going to help you at the end. A great metaphor I love for the word of God, the, the spirit of God, a relationship with God, a beautiful me uh, metaphor, I think, that's not perfect, but a good metaphor, is the relationship we have with music. How many of you guys love music? Come on. How many of you guys consider yourself a musician? Okay, a few of you, okay. And some of you are like, hey. Don't raise your hand. Uh, but just starting off maybe, or passionate, or maybe you've played and dabbled a little bit. Music is a beautiful thing, and I want to use it to set a foundation for this message as we get into the word and weave it in. Because music is both something you can feel and innately like know, like the rhythm of or the key, like you like it, we enjoy it. Even if you don't have a very strong structure of how it's done and how it's made. But the best musicians have both. I've met musicians that know like all the structure, but if I just say, hey, just play something, they're like, what do you want me to do? I, I need like the, the chord chart. I need the things in front of me. And I've met people that can just play and go, but you're like, hey, play this and sharp that, flat that, you know, you add a ninth to that. And they're going, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the best of both worlds is someone who has a foundation because music, although it's beautiful and it has a great feel and everyone is trying to play some kind of melody in our life or enjoys it, there is structure and there are rules behind music. For instance, let's say God is playing in the key of F sharp 
In our lives, we can hear the message, and we can hear the rhythm and the key of God. And maybe you come to church, you're like, oh, I've never, oh, that, that's good, that's, that's not. Maybe you hear something, you're like, oh, God is love. Oh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. I should be loving too. Ooh, I like that. If you hear some of the message of scripture, that not just has a feel, but there is an order. There is a structure and a way to produce this music. So the metaphor is behind you. It's the key of God. It's the rhythm of God involving the structure and the feel and the spirit behind it. And we come with our gifts and our ideologies and our isms and all of our ways and we introduce ourselves into the sound like this. Now, unless you're tone deaf, that is off key. Every once in a while, you might hit an F sharp, but isn't that hard to hear? Just sit in that for a second. Because this is the posture we come with our way of doing life, our way of doing relationships, our way of living behind the melody that God has set and put in our hearts, the Bible says, and it doesn't match. Stop, stop, you gotta stop. That's how a lot of our lives are. And we, something happens and we realize, oh my gosh, I heard the melody of the gospel of Jesus and it's not matching. And you say, but how do I match it? And God starts showing you the right keys. That's better. I start living in the structure, if you're in music, of F sharp and how those work together. And I'm starting to kind of not listen, just God's playing, play these chords, but in this key, in this way, he allows me to be creative, but in his way. He's not creating me a robot, but saying, now use your instrument in my key to bring glory. This is what scripture and the spirit does. Now, I feel it. I like it. It's a little... Mr. Rogers, but I like it. But not only do I feel it, I like it, I'm at peace in my life, but there's also a level of structure because I'm learning the right way to play in the ways of God. Now there's times though, as we get to scripture or even in our lives where things feel off and there's like a, a dissonance. And a musical dissonance is a term where it's just off, play something, just a dissonance. And sometimes music will do this, but then it resolves. Oh, thank God. But sometimes music will do this intentionally to make you go, oh, oh, what's going on? And when we're reading scripture or in life and we go, oh, oh, what is that? Oftentimes we'll jump and go to another key or another thing instead of go back and allow God to resolve, please, Jesus. In our life, the melody from heaven. Y'all give shot a hand.
It's important that we learn the key of God, the melody and rhythm of God. Again, that has both structure in specific ways, but this isn't just bound to those ways to make you a robot, but then allow the spirit of God through interpretation, understanding the greater story of scripture to bring something beautiful about in our life and ultimately a relationship with God. And see, but here's the deal. As I said, if we just come and start talking about marriage, but we don't have a robust understanding of the scripture and the spirit of God, it's not gonna get us very far because we're not built on his melody. In fact, we're gonna end up going to all sorts of other ideas and isms. Tim Keller talks about the word religion. Oftentimes we'll say, I, 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 I don't, I'm not really religious, but I'm this. I hear a lot nowadays, people will say, I'm really into Jesus and I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And you hear that a lot in our world. And there's this typical kind of disdain or almost side eye towards things like the Bible and scripture. We have different views and different understandings. And, and we know this, the Bible is kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, it starts with a talking snake, so you're already going, eh, this is weird. You have things like Jacob on his wedding night with his bride Leah doesn't recognize her. You're going, okay, this something's off. If you don't recognize your bride on your wedding night, right? You swiped right too many times or something. I don't know. <laughs> you have things like, what is a Nephilim? What is a Nephilim in Genesis 6? spirits and angels and demons. You have all of these things in the scripture. So it's easy in our current day and age to say, I, I like Jesus, but I'm not really into the Bible and like religion. And yet Tim Keller says, here's a good definition for what religion really is. A set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are and how we should spend our time. In other words, Almost any ideology can be religious in a way because it's a story you believe about who you are and how you should live your, spend your life and your time. So that could involve atheism. You have a story of how everything is and now it feeds everything that I do. Buddhism, Confucianism, capitalism, socialism, all the isms come and in this kind of definition are a form of religion, a set of beliefs, an undercarriage of a key that we are following and trying to find and play in our life. And yet, we have this thing called the Bible in church. And we have different views and different ideas. And today, I want to ask this question of you when it comes to Scripture. If religion can be a bunch of different types of things and in essence becomes that because it changes the way you think and act, and we approach scripture in that same manner, the question is, what's your general posture towards scripture? Do you have kind of a view of scripture that is not fully robust, a high view, maybe it's a, a low view of scripture. Maybe you're the type of person, oh, I just believe it, this is what it is. But why believe it? Because, I mean, maybe there's some discrepancies, maybe there's things we don't understand, or maybe it's just not even culturally appropriate. Because I think of like 
the battle of Jericho and marching around. And older generations say, yeah, that's a metaphor and an allegory. I'm going to march around my house and cast things down. And that's a really bad way to interpret that scripture, by the way. Or a newer generation comes along and says, how is that not genocide in the name of God, killing a whole group of people while marching we have these questions about scripture. Can we trust it? I don't know. And ultimately, people will say things like, I believe in Jesus. I just don't like the Bible. And some people will come along and say, well, I believe in Jesus because the Bible told me so. But that's not really, I think, the best perspective for us today. There's a great little book by Andrew Wilson called Unbreakable. And he's quoted, this is a great quote, he says this. Ultimately, you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. The man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't, listen to this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks, which he does, and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. I don't trust in the Bible just because someone told me, trust in the scripture. Because that's the same kind of thing. Well, it's just God wrote it. It's God's word. You could say the same thing about the Quran, right? The Bhagavad Gita. You could say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. You could say thing about any type of book. We just believe it's God breathed. And yet, because of the man God, Jesus, fully human, fully man, the way he approached the Bible, he had such a high view and yet also seeing it as one picture, one story ultimately leading to him. Now I can trust it. So I, it's hard for me to say, I love Jesus, I'm devoted to Jesus, but I don't care about the scripture because Jesus thought highly of the scripture. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter five, verse 17 through 20. Matthew is recording things about Jesus. And he says this, these are Jesus' very words. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets is a good way to say all of the Old Testament. So the law was the first five books and the prophets were the rest of the books, right? So he's saying, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, these two words are very Interesting in the Greek that Jesus is using that we have from our transcript, the Greek here abolishes kataleo, and kataleo means this I didn't come to tear down, to deconstruct the Bible like some people do. And the reason why he even had to say this is because something about the demeanor and the actions and the teachings that Jesus was saying. The melody, if you will, the key that he was singing his life in was so different from other teachers of the law that they thought he's got a different idea of scripture, that he's doing away with it. He's deconstructed it. 
And typically you see people, as I said, that say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Bible. That's usually a pit stop and a layover into, I don't believe in anything or in Jesus ultimately, because the Bible and Jesus go together. And he says it himself. I didn't come to abolish it, to deconstruct it, to get rid of it. But he says, I come to fulfill it. Now, we can think, and probably back then they thought he was going to say, I didn't come to disobey it, I came to obey it. But he doesn't say obey, not that you shouldn't, but the word he uses is complete it, fulfill it, to fill it up to the fullest. In other words, to give you the right interpretation of what you're supposed to believe because there's so many voices and so many beliefs and interpretations. Jesus comes in and says, no, this is the word of God, and this is how you view it through me. What a bold statement. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There's a method to all the madness, even if you don't understand it or get it, and especially if you don't want it, which if you read the Bible long, you're going to find things, ooh, I like that, I like that. You're going to find things you don't like and then go, well. And Jesus says, that's not how to read the scripture. He goes so strong, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes, or another word is loose, or this is the idea of untying your shoe. One of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least. It's a play on words. Relax, loose. If you do this as the least, use the least of the scripture, you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. The key word is does and teaches, like knowledge, structure, and lives it out, feels it, if you will. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he goes hardcore. If you relax a little, well, you don't, don't really worry about that, then you're going to be least in the kingdom. Oh, you're in the kingdom, but you're least. And if you do and obey the commandments, you're going to be great. And then he says... But I'm telling you, and he's looking at the religious elite, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he says this, just because you are right does not make you righteous. You could say all the right things and know all the right things, and we all know people in our culture that could tell you the right, and they know everything. They know every Greek, every Hebrew word, every Aramaic word in Scripture, but their life is not loving. They're not actually living it out. He says, to be right doesn't mean you're righteous. And the goal of being right is righteousness. The goal of the Scripture is to be loving is to sacrifice yourself. And the reason why we trust Jesus is because he didn't just say it, he did it. He demonstrated it. And that is who Jesus is. Now, it's really hard to talk about things like scripture and the validity and the power of scripture without hitting a little bit of the polarization in our culture. Now, we're not going political, but we're going gospel. But unfortunately, 
the tragic truth that's going on in our culture is everything is being more and more polarized between left and right, between this idea and this idea. And without furthering just a stereotype, I'm going to give a little bit of a stereotype of both. If you look at the left side of the aisle in their appropriation and understanding of Scripture, typically, not everybody, okay, but stereotypically, you're going to have people that will say things like, it's good literature, but don't take it too seriously. Be careful how you read it and what you do, because it's good. It's helped shape Western civilization, and it's worth a good read every once in a while, but it's not scripture, like God breathed. That's typically what you're going to see. And then on the right side, they're going to say, no, it's all God. And they'll have a view of like a golden tablets view, Tim Mackey would say in the Bible project, which is like it just fell down from heaven and I just believe it, and it just is what it is. And they'll say it with the term in an extreme, again, this is an extreme t- stereotype, but a term like a bumper sticker that says things like this in the South, you'll probably see these. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And it almost shuts the door for any kind of dialogue on the flip side. There's a strong like, oh, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, but no room for the spirit of God, usually, and can corrupt and create just a sense of control, not in every instance, but these two extremes. And Jesus didn't come to placate to our political extremes. He came to overtake all of the ways to say this is the right way to interpret. And we see this constantly. And so if if you're the, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You're missing some basic things that even Jesus would say. The Bible says it. Okay, what does the Bible say? That's good. I believe it. That's good. But you're missing a little thing like, now I've got to learn how to interpret, and that takes a lot of hard work and and energy. And then it might settle it every once in a while, depending on some of the things that we're talking about. Now, that doesn't make it confusing, but makes it something worth studying as if it's words from heaven, not just man-made words that are just simple to understand, and we take it or leave it. It's very interesting to see how Jesus approached this. And without, I'm continuing in this parallelism because we're going to see this in the first century when you study the Bible, Jesus had the same types of thing, not a perfect metaphor, but the same types of thing. He had Sadducees on the left and Pharisees on the right that he constantly had to talk to and rebuke and say, you're not reading the scripture correctly. If you don't know much about scripture, Sadducees were, were like the religious elite that also worked in tandem with Rome quite a bit for the trajectory of Judaism in first century on where they're going to go and what they're going to do. So they were easily influenced by politics and money, and they had the stature. And Sadducees, interestingly enough, only believed in the law in scripture. It was only the first five books, which are called the Book of Moses, the ones he wrote, everything else was wrong. So they don't believe in like resurrection and spirits and demons and these kind of things, which if you learn in Bible college, it means that we call them Sadducees, but sad you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. But if you just die, and that's it. They're sad, you see. And they were this type of elite and, and it had this intellectual prowess 
and way. They even had their own interpretation of the five books and had a sense of pride about who they are. And Jesus had a lot to say to the Sadducees, and he would come in, and you're going to see savage Jesus, who I love. Not just the happy Jesus, and we're like, oh, I love that. But when he gets in your grill, that, I like that Jesus too, because I know I need that a lot. Mark 12 says this, and Sadducees came to him, to Jesus, who say, these are the Sadducees, as I just told you, they're sad, you see. There is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now, they're not asking a question like I really, they're questioning him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This, is, this was a great law um, for widows, for social responsibility, really beautiful thing that Moses wrote through the inspiration of God. Verse 20. So they say, here's like the mother of all hypothetical situations which people love to do, right? There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he, when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as his wife. Now you might not understand, but they're pretty much trying to do a gotcha. We don't believe in the resurrection. Here's why. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. Look at this extreme hypothetical situation. Gotcha. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? In other words, I'm about to tell you why, why you're wrong in the way you think. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Mic drop. Oh, my gosh. If we said that in our day and age today, without the authority that Jesus carried and had, it would get you killed. People would go from, yeah, love, love, I'm all about love, to crucify him. And we wonder why Jesus was crucified. Because he challenged the elites on all end of the extreme and would say things like, you don't understand scripture. You don't know the power of God. And then he dismantles, verse 25, for when they rise, in other words, resurrection is reality. This is what I believe. I'm not on your team. They neither marry nor they are given to marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. So he's like, you're asking the wrong questions. You don't even understand how things are going to work. And this is good news for some of us. Some of you are like, oh, that means I'm not going to be married with my wife forever. Okay, we could talk about that. But there's not going to be marriage in heaven in the same way there is on earth. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? In other words, I'm about to use your own scripture. In the passage about the bush, the burning bush, how God spoke to Moses and saying this, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. In other words, Jesus was okay with saying, the scripture's right, you're wrong in how you interpret it. And that's a hard thing to grasp, isn't it? If somebody comes in and says, you're wrong immediately, right? The four-year-old Chris comes out. You're not the boss of me, right? Like, ah. And yet of the humble posture and disposition that comes with a person that wants to learn and grow, 
not with the person that wants to say, this is what it is, period, and control. Jesus comes in and says, you're trying to control me and the narrative and your interpretation is wrong. But listen, he also picks on Pharisees. And if you know anything about Pharisees, Pharisees raised their kids. I mean, from young, some of them would memorize all of the scripture, the law and the prophets. I'm telling you, memorize it by 10 years old. They were all, the prayer in school, everything is there. Every, I mean, they're all about, everything's about that. And it's like, this is the scripture, this is everything. But the problem, and Jesus would have to say, you've gone so extreme that they would also add traditions of man to the teachings in what's called the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are like a Bible commentary. And you've elevated those to God's word and done a serious wrong to people. So you'll go to the furthest extreme to win somebody and win them to their way, but then you make them twice as much a son of hell, Jesus' words, as they were before. So he would have to rebuke them because although you're devoted to the word, you've also added to it and you forgot the spirit of it. Although you know the structure of music really well, you have no feel for the tone anymore if you will. And he says this, John 5, 39, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And they're like, yeah, we are devoted to the scriptures. It's Bible only. And it is they that bear witness about me. You miss the whole point. They're talking about me. It's one story leading to me. I'm the filter for scripture. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. I do not receive glory from people. He says this in a very strong manner to rebuke both the left and the right. And we can end today and say, okay, well, then just think differently. Trust Jesus. Yes, that's true. Paul would come along and have to humble his heart and his way, his melody he was singing. And he would write to his understudy, his disciple Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, and say this about Scripture, which is how I want to end today. He would say this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and he gives us four things, for teaching, for reproof or rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped with every good work. Paul would say, I was really religious. I added things to the faith. And I, I wasn't on this extreme, but I was on this extreme. And Christ had to come and open my eyes to the scripture, which was what he did when he resurrected. He goes and he starts, this is how to interpret the scripture. And people would say, it's burning within me. Something is different to the way he taught. But he had both a high view of scripture and an understanding of the point in the story being all encompassed into him. And he'd say this, Paul would say, I've learned that the scripture is for teaching. In other words, it teaches, it reveals to us the possibility of life in the kingdom of God. So as we're gonna go, we're gonna talk about marriage and dating and how to do it. This is all based on scripture and scripture teaching us how to live and to think. With Christ being the center, Christ-centered, in everything, in the very prism that we look through Scripture for, for teaching. 
but also, and this is the hard one, especially in our day and age today, where you have my truth and this truth and that truth. He says, it's also for rebuking. And rebuke literally means to stop or arrest you. This rebuking is to reveal all the ways we're currently not living in the key of God. Not so we could go, oh man, or you're not the boss of me, leave me alone, but to say, no, I've got something for you. And you should trust my words and my way. I don't know about you, but I, I gotta trust what Jesus trusted more than my own eyes. We saw a horrible tragedy this week with Kobe Bryant and the helicopter and everybody's mourning and it's sad and it is horrible. And I remember I read a report that the helicopter had turned off the instruments because he was just going by his own sight. And it reminded me of this, how many of us just live in the fog and the life and we're just going, I got this. And instead of trusting in the instruments and the things that have gone before us to help us navigate the craziness of life. How prideful is it for me to say, I know my way and not looking to not only the clouds of witnesses, but ultimately what Jesus would say is the way for rebuking, for correcting, to bring it, that's bringing back into alignment with Christ to get back on pitch. Maybe there's a dissonance and you're like, eh. oh yeah, that is right. I don't trust your way. Like you're talking about not having sex until I'm married. Like, and so sex is something more than just a feeling or a relationship or something that's my own freedom, but it's something deeper that involves all of me. Like, no, I can't believe it. And then I realize, no, this is true because I see the effects outside of healthy sexual living. Not blinding our eyes, but correcting us. And lastly, Paul uses this word training in righteousness. This is the word padia, which means this. It's the overall process from birth to infancy to maturity. It's training us to think and to live in the story of Christ and be like him. Ultimately, here's the deal. When the scripture is taken highly as God's word breathed and through the prism of Jesus. It's not just there for information. Give me a good life, teach me, but formation, forming you into someone like Christ, forming you into someone that can play in that key with your gifting and your personality because you know the structure and the feel. You know the spirit, the power of God and the structure of God. But it comes with that heart posture that says, I'm willing. So as we're about to talk about relationships, I could not start without saying, we are a church that believes in the scripture. And if there's thing through the prism of Jesus, and if there's things we don't understand, I don't first go, oh, it must be wrong. I go, maybe I'm misunderstanding something. And I need Christ to help and fill me. And finally, I would say this, I came up with this dumb acronym for you, as the preachers do, to help you slay scripture. The first thing is silence. There's an idea of just silence and giving reverence to scripture. And then the second thing is listen. Listen and pray. Prayer and scripture always go like, Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, enlighten what you're saying. 
silence, listen and pray. The A in slay is applied to your soul like balm. God, if you need to correct or train, like whatever, let me think the right way and finally yield to the scripture and what God wants. And that yielding can be the hardest part because lost, lost, oftentimes the, Jesus will say, deny yourself. And we think denial is like a oh, white knuckled fist. Like, oh, I gotta do it. No Krispy Kreme, no Krispy Kreme. And yet the denial and yielding is more like this. I trust you. Not what I see, not what I think. But I'm going to go your way. And something beautiful happens, which is called lordship in Christianity. It means he's Lord and I trust him. And listen, this solves your decision fatigue. If you know like, hey, this is what I'm asking of you. And this is what I want you to do. You don't have to, when tempted, go, oh, should I do that or not? What should I do? You've already made the decision. Okay. It makes the decision easier because I've already chosen to yield and obey. Whatever comes my way, here I go. I don't have to. Following Jesus, and I'm after His heart.